welcome to the Info Jabs with Pascal. I am your host. And before we get started, I am going to again remind you to follow the page and subscribe on Spotify. Today's episode is going to be a conversation with a friend. A few years ago, I met this wonderful human being, maybe about nine, 10 years ago. And I was already into public service, but she introduced a new way of serving, which is being aware of what's happening around you because you can serve in different capacities. You can serve by feeding the poor. You can serve by tutoring. You can serve by doing all of those things, but making sure that you are not in the dark about certain things where you can pass on that information or being able to redirect someone who seems to have an understanding on social issues, that's a part of serving. I really think that my friendship with her has changed in my life. And any chance I get to have somebody else hear what she has to say, I jump on that immediately. So before we get started, I want to say a little bit about her. Her name is Johanna Marie Williams. She's a writer, an artist, a historian focusing on Black women's health and religio-spiritual experiences. Her current projects have included conference papers on the history of Black midwives in Florida and the intellectual history of post-transhumanism among Black women writers and speculative fiction. She's a blogger. She's a prolific speaker. She has done work with the John G. Riley Museum, and she has a bachelor's degree in English with a special focus on creative writing and her master's in history from Florida A&M University. I'm really excited, and let's get started. Welcome, Johanna Marie. Thank you for having me, Pascal. Wow, you're making me blush. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I am excited about this. So we're going to be talking about race, the importance of these conversations. Johanna, beyond her studies, she's always researching. And I I just like to have these conversations with her because I'm always learning something new. I believe that's how we expand our minds and our perspectives on different topics, um, especially this one. My first question is, first of all, why do you believe it's important to have this conversation about race? Because that's a passion of yours. You have a lot of talks about this and sometimes debates. So why do you think this is a conversation that we, we should be having? I think, you know, if you've been in the United States at all over the last few decades, it's honestly a conversation we can't escape. It keeps coming up all by itself almost. So it seems because it keeps affecting the way we live our lives, affecting our opportunities, affecting how we think of ourselves. Um, And I'm saying this as one African-American speaking to a Haitian-American, right? So there's history there. There's reasons why we even call ourselves these things, whether it's Black or African-American or Haitian, so on and so forth. Like there's history there and that shapes who we are. So that's important. Johanna, from a very young age, I know that you always loved to read, but I am interested in your education, your, the primary years. I know that you were homeschooled. Was it, was it starting high school or earlier? 
Oh, it was earlier. Um, so I was in private Christian school until first grade. And then I was homeschooled until fourth grade when my mom uh, had to take a leave from homeschooling for health reasons. Uh, so I was in public school for fourth and fifth grade. And after that, I was homeschooled for the rest of my educational career, uh, at least uh, before college. So I did always love to read, even as a kid in like private Christian school. I was an early reader. I was teaching my younger sister to read. I Books were just a wide open world. So even before homeschooling, that became a love of mine and a passion. But I do, will, will say, I think that there's like the space and the creativity that my mom and dad were able to have with my education and, you know, making sure I meet the benchmarks that were set by the state of Florida. So they did that, but also they were able to let me pursue some of my interests and even shape some of my interests through history and literature. Okay. I feel like I've asked about it before, but I've always been interested in whether or not your homeschooling years prepared you or if maybe something else and maybe when you were in college or, you know, I'm pretty sure other factors too, but. I definitely, like there's definitely, you get in the moat because learning is to some extent self-directed when you're homeschooling. Yes, your parents are there, but there's, you know, parents are also doing things like going to work, taking care of the house. Both of my parents were also pastors. So there was definitely a part of our education that's self-directed and the same for everyone who's homeschooled. But for me, that definitely helped that part of me that loves to learn and just get into the nitty gritty of different topics. Okay. Has race always been an issue in our world? Because it, it seems like now every corner you turn, we're talking about race. And some people are saying that this has only happened within the last couple of decades. But has race always been an issue, the topic of race? So I thank you for this question. Uh, I, I'm really excited about it because I actually have a little experiment I want us to do together. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So let, let's let's go on a little mind journey through what we know about history. And because, you know, we live the way we split up time, we start BC and AD or BC, BC and CE, like AD being Anno Domini, CE being the Christian era. Either way, let's go back all the way to zero um, CE in the Christian era. Most people would say that that is around the time that Christianity starts, that Jesus was walking the earth and this religious movement that we now know as Christianity started. So when you think of that time, do you think of race? Do you think race existed at that time? Does it seem like the concept of race fits into that era? I don't believe so. Okay, so let's skip ahead. Let's skip ahead to the year let's say around the 400s. So this is, uh, for, again, we're in the West, so we're going by some of the major things that happened then. It's around the time that Christianity is no longer a persecuted religion, but becomes a state religion under Emperor Constantine. Does the idea of race feel congruent with what you know about that time period? No, not race, exactly. Yeah, okay. So maybe something like ethnicity or family lineage, things like that, but not race like black, white, red, and yellow. The, these like primary colors that we use, that doesn't seem congruent, right? Mm -hmm. All right, let's skip ahead to the year. Let's skip, we're going to skip a little further ahead just because we're not going to go through all of our timeline. That would take forever. But let's say the year 13th century, 14th century, 
that's around the time that the Black Plague is spreading through Europe and people are, you know, really being affected by this terrible sickness. The Catholic Church is established. Um, the Orthodox Church is also established. It's the Middle Ages. Does race feel like it really applies or feel, does it feel congruent to you? Does that feel like an idea native to that time period? I almost want to say yes, because losing so many workers I think they started experimenting with the idea of having Black people replace the people who used to work and do these jobs. So I don't know if if it's during that time or shortly after, maybe it became an issue. What what do you think? I think you're on the right track. So 13th and 14th century, that's like 1200s, 1300s. We're not really there yet. but. In the 1400s, you know, that's when we see European exploration. We see not just trade with countries in Western Asia or countries in North Africa, but like sustains contact with African people, between European people and African people. And that's kind of around the time that the idea of race emerges. That's also the time that we're like seeing this huge burst in literacy this huge burst in printing books in Europe, this burst of education and philosophy and theology and science, where people are learning how to classify the world into different categories. And that's around that time period that we start to see the idea of race emerge. It's emerging from, and it emerges from a particular place in Europe. It emerges at a particular time period, like you're saying, after the Black Plague, as Europe is like growing and replenishing and the renaissance the renaissance you know that's usually how we categorize that time period it's this time of renewal in science literature education so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and that's where we start to see people start to say well how do we classify these others these people who are so other that it's really hard to make sense of who they are and what they're like if they're other in religion, they don't share the same religion as Christianity. And they're not even Muslim. A lot of them aren't even Muslim, um, which Europe had had consistent contact with Muslims in both peaceful and non-peaceful ways through the Middle Ages. So that's kind of, so no, to answer your question, it's not always been an issue. Though there's always been conflict, right? Between ethnicities, between kingdoms, between uh, families who are in the same business and want to get over on each other, so on and so forth. All types of conflict. But the idea of race starts in a particular place at a particular time. Yes. So that's what I wanted to get an understanding about, because I, I do sometimes hear that people say, well, we never had to really deal with this. Why are we now all of a sudden we're talking about race more and more and more? And not everybody's comfortable talking about race. Some people would argue that you've heard, okay, you're pulling the race card, which I do feel like sometimes some situations are not about race. It's just the situation. But it is something now that it, it applies, now that it's here, we have to talk about it, but we can talk about it in a civil way. There are people who are intimidated or maybe offended whenever this topic comes up. Why do you think that's the case? This is actually kind of a big question because it touches on a lot of, it touches on, there are different reasons to be uncomfortable or offended. And in fact, being intimidated or offended. Those are two different emotions. So they are probably coming from different places. I think one part of the intimidation is because the discussion about race, what it is, how it works, is such a deep historical discussion. You have to start, if you're going to go back to its origins, that's all the way back in the Renaissance or maybe a bit before. 
because we can also talk about anti-Semitism, right? That started before we even have the categories of black and white, this very virulent, very strong prejudice against Jewish people that still is carried forward to today, right? So A, there's a knowledge barrier, meaning if you don't know a lot about history, this whole discussion can feel convoluted and confusing. It's like, well, why are things changing here or there? It's like, no, there's a historical context there. If you understand who the people are and what's going on, it becomes clear. But if you don't, then it just feels like a big soup, a big confusing soup of ideas. I think people are often offended because when you're talking about race, you are automatically talking about social hierarchy and power. And I say that because that's how the idea of race was. When European philosophers like Kant and Locke and others were discussing amongst each other how to classify human beings, they didn't just classify them in this horizontal parallel way that said that everyone had the same value and they're just different, right? It was in a hierarchy where some people were better than others. And it's hard to discuss those types of hierarchies, whether you're talking about money, because people have a hard time talking about money too, right? We have a hard time talking about gender. And like, yes, gender is probably like one of the most essential things that has existed as far as we have human culture and bodies and things like that. But it's still hard to talk about, well, where do these beliefs about what men can do and what women can do and what they can and can't, what they can't do come from and how do we deal with that? So I think anytime you're talking about something that takes a lot of time or at least a lot of care to understand, there's a high knowledge barrier and it's something that touches on how we move through the world and treat each other. Those are things, those are all barriers to easy conversation. Yeah, well, I also think that the question, the personal question that someone should be asking is, why do I feel uncomfortable? Why does this bother me so much? Do I need to be introspective and find out what's making me uncomfortable? I don't feel like you should be afraid of those feelings. And if that's something that somebody's experiencing whenever the topic of race comes up or anger, you should probably, before becoming defensive, figure out, well, why are you feeling like that? Because they usually say that anger is a secondary emotion. So what is the initial reason why I might get a little squirmish whenever this topic comes up? And you know, this is not it's not the same thing, but I think about the topic of sex, right? It's not comfortable until today, as much as we know about this and how important it is to talk to your children about it. It's not something that's comfortable for parents, but when we don't talk about it and we act like it doesn't exist or we'll say the bare minimums, it's problematic. When kids don't know what they need to know about sex, it's problematic and they end up learning the hard way or learning from another place that you may not approve of as a parent. But when you do talk about it, when those kids get into certain situations, they're already aware and they are able to make decisions that will, one, align with what you have taught them. Or, you know, or they'll make their own decisions still, but it's, it doesn't hurt to talk about it, to teach about it and to not stay away from it just because it can be a tough conversation. Do you know what I mean? Oh, definitely. And I think your point about like that introspection, like on a personal level of what is, what is it about this that is making me intimidated, uncomfortable or offended is so helpful. And I think it's not just 
I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, you're talking to white people. It's like, no, lots of people are uncomfortable talking about race from different ethnicities, from different experiences. And especially in, I don't want to say just in the U.S., but in anywhere there's an urban center where you have people from different parts of the world coming together, you're going to have all kinds of people with all types of different life experiences coming together to talk about this thing because it's worldwide at this point, right? Um, It affects to some extent, either race or colonialism or both affects everyone everywhere in some form or fashion, have have some type of history with it that affects your current life experiences. So once you're feeling uncomfortable, you notice like your jaw is tight or your shoulders are tight or your stomach is clenched or your heart's a little racy or your hands are a little sweaty. Those physical symptoms of arousal, not sexual arousal, but just like emotional and mental arousal. Mm-hmm. Um, and stress or anxiety show up. So you can pause and ask yourself, what about what was just said or the exchange that happened made me uncomfortable? Why am I reacting this way? And what can I learn about what just happened or what was said or the conversation I just had? What can I learn more about it um, that will make the next encounter less stressful, less uncomfortable? I I think that's so important. Yeah. And, you know, and I encourage people, if you are feeling that way, you're not, you're not sure how to process it. You can always reach out to someone who can provide a safe space for you to process and unpack what's coming up for you, questions that you may have, resistance that you may feel about being open to learning to think a different way about this topic. I know you have been engaged in conversations with countless people, those who agree with you, those who are just seeking to learn more, those who disagree. But I'm pretty sure you walk away having a different understanding of each other. And I'm not volunteering you to be the one that everybody calls, but I know that you have been that person where people, well, even me, even me, we have a different experience. You know that I grew up in a country where I was the the majority, you know, and I'd never had to really think about that until I got to the States and I went to college. Oh, I want to say something. (laughs) I do want to say that sometimes people look for hard clues. They look for something that is tangible to maybe validate why this is no longer an issue. The reason why I I believe, well, let me tell you what happened the other day. I was at the store, at the grocery store. I was paying and uh, something kept happening with the machine. I was, it was a self-checkout and I was looking, I was looking around for, I don't know if I was looking around for help for someone to come help me because I, I may have ranked something twice. As I was looking around, my eyes crossed with a person who was a white male. And you know, like if I, if you had a dog and I killed your dog, how you would be looking at me like with hatred. Mm-hmm. I, caught, I caught that happening. And as soon as our eyes met, he sort of like just looked away. You know, like those are things that are subtle. And this is not my yeah. first time experiencing that. So there are experiences on the daily that people of color may experience. And just because it's not really visible for everyone, everyone sh- feels like this is something of the past. This is something that you don't have to keep bringing this up. The more you bring it up, the more that you're giving it life. And I understand that mindset. But why is that still happening? Why am I still getting those looks just by being at the grocery store? So that means that there's conversations that we that that we need to have with people now am i saying that it's because of the color of my skin that he was looking at me like that i don't know 
but I also don't know him and I don't know why someone like, you know, could he have been upset because I was having trouble with the machine, but to look at me that way, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me. So yes, not everything is about race, but sometimes it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder why you walk into a restaurant and you have a stare that like, you're not supposed to be here. So that's why I think it's important to talk about that. I think this happens when we don't have healthy conversations about it, but what do you believe the benefits are when we do talk about race? So this is another big question. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, all of these are, right? (laughs) Um, But to be as succinct as possible, oh my goodness. I think, because sometimes it can feel like there aren't any benefits. It feels like this is just a contentious issue that will never be solved. But the one thing in having a lot of these conversations, both with people I agree with, with people who kind of don't know how they feel and with people who like truly disagree with me, the the thing that I've discovered or the thing that feels the most true coming out of these conversations that seems to be consistent is that most of the disagreement comes from a disagreement about history, about what happened. And usually once I've come to agreement with someone and that's sometimes me changing my mind, and sometimes them changing their mind or both of us gaining some nuance in our positions. It's come from learning together how to weigh the things that have happened and how much they affect the present. To me, there's a part of talking about race with, and this only can only happen with people who are honestly coming to the conversation, wanting to share, right? And wanting to learn and we're both here to hear each other, so on and so forth. But I have seen people come to some consensus and learn to understand each other better, understand each other's perspective better by sharing why and how they understand the world to be the way it is. So I I just think there's some healthy consensus to talking about race and that we can come to a better consensus when we understand our shared history. So we may have touched on this uh, a little bit, but I mentioned earlier what I think some of the consequences can be, but what do you believe the consequences can be when we try to stay away from talking about race in America? I mean, I think the consequence is racism, actually. Mm. Um, I think sometimes people are scared to that they'll create racism by talking about race. I'm like, no, you actually you actually preserve and cover racism by not talking about race not talking about how we came here, not talking about the ideas people have, because it's become such an integral part of our world. And it was made that way, right? Like it, it, people made laws about about what people, what jo- kind of jobs people could have based on their race, what things they were allowed to own based on their race. One of my favorite YouTubers, Intellectual, um, and that's spelled with an X um, instead of a C, T in, intel- in the word intellectual, just did a video on the history of Black Americans and dog ownership and kind of, and dogs in general, like pets and how that relationship has been through American history. Enslaved people in the Americas were often discouraged from owning dogs. Slave owners were taxed if the ensla- if their enslaved people owned dogs after African-Americans were freed from slavery. Um, they were often restricted by Jim Crow laws from owning dogs. So there's this, you know what I mean? Like, it seems dumb, right? Like, it's just dogs. It's just pets or guard dogs and things like that. But suddenly, and we have enshrined in law what Black people can't, can or can't do 
with dogs because of race and racism. Uh, so it's it's it, so that's just an example of how deep this goes in American culture and history and law. So no, we can't just erase that by not talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. We only changed a lot of these laws in the last 70 years, literally since my dad has been born. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I saying- was ask you, I was I was gonna ask you, did he mention what what well, I don't know if the law would say would say why they didn't want black people to own dogs, but did he mention does he speculate at all? So yes, yeah, it's a woman who hosts the channel. There were specific dogs that were bred for hunting enslaved people and acting as guard dogs on plantation property. So it's not, and it's not just like individual plantation owners, but like sheriffs would have them, uh, slave catching groups would have them, even the military, U.S. military bought some. So they didn't want black people to have access even to them as pets, because that would blur the line between. They wanted dogs to they wanted you know dogs to be able to catch <laughs> enslaved people and to be very aggressive toward black people in general. She was so in this part of the video, she's talking about why there seems to be like this historical tension between black Americans and dogs. And she's like, and actually a lot of them were brought from Haiti, FYI. Like they were trained in Haiti to chase enslaved Haitians by uh French government there. And in like the 1700s, uh the US bought specifically trained dogs that were trained to chase enslaved Haitian people to the U.S. to chase enslaved African-American people. <laughs> now, you know I'm going yeah, to look into look, that. I'll send you the link. And honestly, maybe that should be in the show notes. But that's uh, that's what I mean when like, hey, friends, even something as simple as pets and whether you're scared of dogs or not, it can be, can be and has been affected by the idea of race. So, no, we're not going to erase it by not talking about it. That's clearly not going to work because it just leaves everything in place that was made. The only way to remove those ideas, remove those laws, remove those um, social conventions, the only way to remove them is to point them out. You can't, you know, you can't remove, you can't pick up something out of your room that you keep pretending isn't there. Mm. You have to look at it, see it deal with it appropriately to remove it and to change it so that's well, the consequence of not talking about race you know i'm i'm sure that some of those laws no longer exist but maybe the attitude might still be there um you know and not that one specifically but laws in the past that just were just unfair to people of color so if you send me the link, I'll put that in the show notes. But I definitely, I mean, you mentioned Haiti. So, you know, I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm no, definitely but- going to look into it and do more research about that. And I encourage everybody else to, to like, that's so interesting. I feel like you have so many interests. Um, and we're going to talk about one, particularly uh, toward the end of the interview. But I know you were an early reader but I don't know if you were always reading about social justice. And actually, I remember when I was in Tallahassee, I took, was it in the museum? Yeah, I went to the museum and I don't know what was going on there, but it was, so, so there was something going on there. It was a special day. And I saw photographs from MLK funeral and I saw 
CK Steel Plaza, the CK the Plaza where people would catch the bus. CK yes. Steel, this guy is it was actually someone who who was really close to MLK and civil rights. Yeah. Yeah. I remember just being exposed to so much and I just want to know where this passion for social justice and just constantly wanting to educate people on what's happening around us developed for you. Was it when you were in school or in college at whatever, what point in your life? I think I was raised part of like, part of that was my, is my personality. Cause I, as a kid, uh, my parents, my dad will tell you now, like one of the main, one of my main phrases was that's not fair. Because <laughs> there's this hyper awareness <laughs> I had as a kid. I was like, I don't know. This doesn't look fair to me. Fair, fair, and fair. Being, for some reason, yeah. to me, being, things being fair was important. I, I still say that. I, I, yeah, I know, right? Last week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe in fairness. <laughs> and, you know, as a kid, that's really simple. It looks really simple, right? But the older you get, you realize that um, fairness is complex. And even beyond fairness, there's justice. And that's complex. And if you don't make the effort to learn about a situation, you're liable to come to either come to an opinion, or if you have the power to make a decision about a situation, make a decision that you think is fair, but will turn out to be wrong because you didn't learn about it. You didn't get the history. The Bible story that comes to mind is the story of Solomon and uh, the two women who come to him and with one baby and say, both are saying, claiming the baby as their child. He literally had to take time, sit down, hear from both of them what the story was, and then make a decision that seemed wild, but revealed the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of mode that was encouraged in my home and it fit my personality. One of my favorite proverbs is was something I'm paraphrasing and paraphrasing badly, but it's it's basically it's God's privilege to hide the mysteries of the world, but it's the privilege of kings to search them out. And you know, I just I, said that. Yes, I it love is, that it, verse. Uh, it's twenty-two or twenty-three. No, I'm, no, no. I'll, it's twenty-three or twenty-four. I'm, okay. I'm gonna look. I'll look it up. Like, oh, as soon as we get crazy. off, I'm gonna look it up again. I love that verse. I love it. But of course, as a child, you know. I'm like, well, I'm a queen. My middle name is Esther, so I'm a queen. So it's my privilege to search these things out. Like, I wanted, I want to know the mysteries. I want to understand. Um, so there's this like this this drive to search out mystery, this drive for things to be fair, and this understanding that you can't do fairness or justice without learning how you got to a particular point, because you're gonna make a wrong decision. Or you're going to come to a very, you know, ill-informed opinion if you don't get all the information to make a good decision. So I think all of those things and loving to read, right? Like loving to read, loving books. And there's a lot of classic literature that is concerned with fairness and the and morality. Uh, Sorry, uh, was there? Did you hear a dog in the background? No. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of dogs, uh, hopefully no one heard that. Uh, the pets are just greeting a, a greeting a friend. But basically, like, that drive, that all of those things together equal what you see today. Okay. Hold on. Because I'm not, I'm not going to be able to focus until I find it. That is okay. I think it's like, it's like the privilege of God or something like that. But the glory of kings to, like, search out those mysteries. I don't know. I love that verse so much. 
Okay, so it was gonna bother me if I didn't. It's actually twenty five. Did I say twenty five yeah. before, or did I say twenty three or twenty four? It's God's privilege to conceal these things, and the King's privilege to discover them. Yes. Yeah. You know, when I read it, did think, wow, that's a little deep, and it deserves more thought to process it. You know, but it just makes me think about how we are now discovering certain things in the world that were already there. They were always there. We're just now, like even in science, we're just now discovering them, but these things already existed. So, wow, that's so crazy. <laughs> I love, oh my, see, thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But um, yeah, that's cool. That was cool. Okay. So did I know your middle name was Esther? I don't think I knew that. I have several middle names, so you might not have. Really? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you want to share that publicly. I, I, I won't share them all on the, uh, but now you know one. <laughs> oh, oh hey. do you know that a few years ago when I was teaching in Tallahassee for Halloween, they allowed the kids to dress up and I dressed up as Queen Esther. Uh, see, so yeah. my parents did not celebrate Halloween. But they did have like a Hallelujah night thing one time, and I also dressed up as Esther. So I'm no not. way! Oh. Yes, <laughs> no, we, we're we, already we, friends, but see, it's coming together, coming together even more. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I don't celebrate it. I don't celebrate Halloween. We didn't celebrate Halloween growing up either. But I love the story of Esther, and it's one of my favorite books. I first of all, I had a really like I just put a few things together and I really looked like a queen and I didn't buy anything. It was everything <laughs> like, <in> my yes. <laughs> closet. <laughs> I just, you know, threw something over, wrapped it around, you know, like put a necklace around my head to look like a like a semi, you know, crown. Uh-huh. Uh, I made I did my makeup in a way in such a way that makes made me look like a queen. When the kids would ask, then we would talk about Esther. So that is so that's interesting. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so- <laughs> All right. So there is an AP course on African-American studies. It's been buzzing in the news um, that Governor DeSantis is not allowing it, not allowing the college board, uh, is not approving it. And he did say that it had some topics that he felt like it was a specific agenda to to brainwash kids or something like that. So some people might think that this course came about maybe after 2020 when there was suddenly, it was almost like another enlightenment period where in 2020, so many people, because of the racial tension, many people were starting to learn about certain things that they've never known before about the history of the country. And people responded differently. Some people responded by wanting to learn more. Some people were just heartbroken that the reality that they thought they knew was somewhat marred. And some people responded with anger and some people decided, okay, well, this is what happened to us, which I don't encourage. You know, I don't encourage we adopt a certain behavior or attitude toward somebody else because of what their ancestors did. I don't believe that. I believe in being better. But what I'm finding out is that this AP course was in the works for almost 10 years. So I just wanted to know your thoughts about it. I think overall, when DeSantis voiced his concerns about the course, it's very striking what his concerns were. The state is objecting to the course, the state of Florida objecting to the course, the state objected to the content, saying that it may lead to a viewpoint of oppressor versus oppressed based solely on race or ethnicity. And that it may not address the internal slave trade system within Africa, and that it may only address present one side of the issue, may not offer any opposing viewpoints or other perspectives on the subject. 
I think this is going to sound too simple. I promise it is a very good, at least for me, it's been a good guiding principle. Teaching more history, not less, is the only way to be fair. Mm. If you have to hide certain aspects of history, then you're probably wrong. And under his guidance, the state of Florida's efforts to hide aspects of history of African-Americans' experience in the United States, which is United States history. It's not just African-American history. This is the history of the United States as well. Reveals a need to control what people believe about history rather than a commitment to the truth. This is my opinion. Hmm. So I don't, I, I'm not in high school and haven't been for a long time. Uh, and I'm not a teacher either. So he's not wrong that or the state isn't wrong that there was slave trade in africa right we could definitely talk about that and i think most of the historical sources that come from people they disagree with fully acknowledge and highlight that fact in fact that is a big point of discussion and or i won't say a big but it's been a rising point of discussion between african immigrants to the united states especially from west africa and african americans because there are cultural inter-ethnic tensions there or beliefs about each other based on that have their basis, their historical basis, if we're looking at, again, the history of the situation in those conflicts. But hiding that the slave trade was guided by and benefited from by Europeans doesn't add, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't, um, that doesn't give the truth of history. That doesn't counter, if we're hiding African slave trade and hiding European slave trade, that doesn't equal truth of history. That just equals a lot of hiding of information. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 I can't really, and it's not just this AP studies course, right? It's also uh, been um, the different uh, restrictions on not just what's taught in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools, but universities uh, by the state of Florida under Governor DeSantis's guidance. The base of these actions add up to not wanting, like we have talked about, not wanting to discuss race rather than looking at it to deal with it. Mm. Uh, and that just doesn't lead, that just leads to more racism. Okay. To understand and speak uh, for both sides. As a teacher, I've taught at private charter public schools. So I understand some concerns that parents may have because this is something so sensitive, right? It's so sensitive. And I'm not sure if the concern is, okay, well, I don't know who's teaching it. And if the person who's teaching it is teaching it with a specific bias that might lead my child to see it differently. You know what I mean? I guess some people might want to have the control to teach it, but to teach it in a way that is objective and not like leaning toward one way. But that's what I'm thinking, though, because I want to be fair to parents who are concerned about what the kids are learning in school. And, but I do wholeheartedly believe what you're saying too. When we keep from talking about something, it sometimes can create, it needs to be clear. It needs to be very, very clear. And I believe that it should be taught and it shouldn't be biased. If that's the concern, it should be taught just strictly, you know, this is, this is what happened. This is what happened. And people who are receiving that information, they have the freedom to make up their minds about what they're learning. But 
I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm still following the debate to know what people are saying about it, the pushback. And, and I, encourage, I encourage everybody else to look into it for yourself too, so you can better understand it rather than just jumping on one side because of who's speaking or you know, jumping on another side because of who you oppose or like what you said, Johanna, the more you learn about something, when you're having a conversation with somebody, either you change your mind or the, or the other person changes his or her mind. I think that's what we need to do more of. We need to just be open, just be open to learn and hear people out rather Definitely. than just showing up being defensive because you can't hear. You can't hear when you're defensive, you know? So uh, I will also add a caveat to that. I mm-hmm. think when you learn learning about something does usually lead to you having an opinion later. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think mm-hmm. sometimes we're in the effort to stay open. We're like um, afraid to come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is come to a conclusion, but be open to changing it based on more evidence mm. yeah that's uh, as like be open to learning always open to hearing but also don't be afraid to come to a conclusion based on what you learn i think it's for me at least it's been really hard learning about the history of race and racism not to come to the conclusion that racism is bad <laughs> you know what i mean and it's okay to say that <laughs> yeah it would take a lot of it would take a mountain of, of evidence because not because I just hold this so strongly, but because there is an opposing mountain of evidence that says racism is bad to to get me to change my mind. Or take a mountain of evidence to get me to change my mind and say racism is good, or that racism didn't exist, or that racism doesn't benefit some people, and not because I'm just holding to that opinion super strongly, but because I've learned a lot about this and there's a mountain of evidence showing that that is the case, and I think the way to counter bias isn't to hide information. The way to counter bias is to have as many people talking about it as possible, because then you do get to hear from one history teacher that you had in ninth grade who has this perspective, and this other history teacher who has this perspective, so on and so forth, on these, you know, on in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go to college, and you don't just have one teacher for the year, but you actually change over semesters. And you get to, not only that, but... Um, you get to read not just books about this, but actually reading what people from the time period that you're studying studying had to say about it. So just going back to, I just want to give, giving some people tools to counter bias. Mm-hmm. It's not reading less information. It's reading more and more widely. And if you're particularly in history, reading what the people who you're studying had to say about the topic. So reading plantation owners from the 1800s what they were thinking about enslaved people will tell you so if someone says people weren't doing this because they didn't feel people were doing slavery because it was economically viable but there were lots of really good slave owners but then you read the journals that slave owners wrote and about agriculture about how to control slaves you read the letters they wrote each other about how to manage their business that included enslaving people you read enslaved people's own testimony about their lives. And all of that added together creates a very bleak and dark picture that isn't just people were doing this um, solely for economic gain, but a lot of people were kind. Mm -hmm. So that's like an opinion people often have. But when you look at the historical evidence from that time period, not talking about a history book with, but literally reading the things written at the time, 
does the do the do those dot primary documents is what they're called in history the documents from the time period mm -hmm. does that support that conclusion and and my experience that answer is no but i encourage you to go read letters between slave owners um agricultural journals where they're teaching each other how to run businesses that rely on slavery and the documents and the biographies of enslaved people to come to your conclusion about whether slavery was mostly okay. You know what I mean? That's how you counter bias, going to the primary documents and hearing the interpretations of lots of different people. Yeah. And you know, Johanna, I completely agree with you just for the sake of people listening so that they can understand what either side might be saying. So what you said earlier, so other people would say, well, yes, we understand that it did happen, but to not mention that there were these people who were kind hearted is also unfair. So we have to also talk about it. But what I hear you saying is, yes, although that might have been the case, but we also have to look at their actions. Yes, you can talk about kindness and talk about how some slaves are treated, but let's think about the impact versus the intention or, you know, like people like to say, to talk about, I don't know about high school, but I know in one of the arguments, one of the complaints are that most, I don't know if most, but many of the college professors teaching are usually biased or against the, you know, against government or against conservative people. So that's the argument that I've heard, the, the, the grievances that some people have. Well, you know, these people who are teaching these courses, they are overly one-sided and so just that everybody can know what all of the complaints are so that you can better understand why this is like a revolving, you know, cycle like of a revolving conversation, but back and forth. Yes. Yeah. So we can understand all angles. But my final question about that, or not, not necessarily a question, just a call. What is the call for people to have these conversations about race? And the reason why I say civil, you know this about me, I'm very peaceful. I believe in talking about really, really hard issues. I'm not afraid to go there. But I also don't, if you come already ready to fight, to argue, to prove somebody wrong or to show them I'm going to clap back or shut down, I don't know if, if you're leaving enough space for you to learn something. You don't have to accept or agree. But I think that the, I mean, you just said something so profound. It's based on what happened in history. When we can both agree on that and maybe that can help manage the rest of the conversation. It's kind of sad that we can't sit and talk about it. <laughs> Why is it so hard? I think what we mentioned at the beginning is uh, like what to do when you notice that you're uncomfortable. And this applies to everyone, right? It doesn't matter really what part of a conversation you're on. Mm -hmm. When you notice you're upset, uncomfortable, intimidated, or offended, being and staying in tune with your body noticing those physical signs as well as like your own like thoughts taking a moment to process what about what just happened or what was said or what i said so on made you uncomfortable and then i think there's the step of learning more learning more outside of that conversation doing your own research on that topic but uh so i'm going to be super honest with you pascal mm -hmm. i don't know if civil conversations about race are enough i think they're a helpful starting place Mm -hmm. And I think a civil civil conversations are like just the should be right the basic requirements of interacting with other humans where we're listening to each other, responding to what each other has said. If we don't understand what they've said, asking 
for clear asking clarifying questions to say, well, what do you mean by that? Or um, I'm not sure, or saying like, this is what I think you're saying. This is how I'm interpreting that. Is that correct? Those are all like really good skills for having a civil conversation. It's also really hard to have a conversation about this if you're talking to someone who has a diametrically different understanding of what is even happening, of what this conversation is about. I think that more than anything else has been what's made it hard to have civil conversations is the fact that we're coming from such different places that we're almost not talking about the same, like to un- unwrap all of the things we believe that are maybe similar, but slightly different that make us come to these separate conclusions. So I really do, that's part of why I think a lot of what um, the state of Florida is doing with history is so detrimental is because it makes it so that we can't have a common conversation about history because what some people are learning in the classroom adds up to one vision of America and what other people are learning through their family history, through their life experience, through any additional learning they're doing at home. Those is like, even if they're all in public school, right? Just adds up to something totally else. So I think there's a certain attitude and posture you have to have but also there has to be a commitment to learning history through primary documents and through a multitude of perspectives. If you don't have that commitment, the being polite in conversation isn't going to get you very far. So you need both. You need both. So I agree. But the call to be civil is not only for the person who is going to be shedding light on the issue. It's also for the person who's coming into the conversation having thought something it's it's for everybody it's for everybody i believe like although the word confrontation is just so negative sometimes i just believe confronting is just coming and talking about an issue and so oh, definitely it doesn't mean that it's not going to be contentious but you still re- maintain a level of respect and consideration. It doesn't have to get to a point where we're hurling insults at people or we're undermining somebody's opinion or, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to get to that level. I don't want to paint a picture like, hey, this is what I believe. What do you believe? Sometimes it can be heated, but even a heated discussion, a debate doesn't have to get disrespectful. I wasn't on the debate team in school and you learn to just present the facts. And sometimes, yes, your voice might be elevated, but you can still remain civil. So what I'm saying is I'm encouraging, and I don't know if I'm missing your point, but there's so many of these discussions that started and then they derailed into something where, okay, we can no longer talk about I'm avoiding this person. And like, it doesn't help. That doesn't help. It might miss your point. Uh, Yeah, I I was definitely addressing that to anyone who was involved in talking about race. More so saying, hey, practice your active listening skills, Mm -hmm. practice being aware of your body, but also practice learning history for everyone, whoever here, for whoever hears this, because you need all of those aspects to have a civil discussion. And I say that because the reality is when we're having a conversation about race, some of the beliefs people have will prevent them from having a civil conversation. If your belief is that some people are inferior, that's a part of a belief about race, then you can't have a conversation in respect. Mm, okay, I see. I see. So, so that's like a base, like you can't agree to the to the to the rules of civility because 
the very thing we're debating is your belief that some people don't deserve that treatment. And that's not everyone, right? <laughs> that's It may not even be most people. Basically, what I'm saying is doing the outside work outside of conversations to prepare you for conversations. And I don't mean just debate points. And again, I mean this for people who are more conservative or more progressive, both. But that reading those primary documents is so, so helpful because that gives us equal a way to have a conversation while understanding each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it, it is hard to have a civil conversation that is a debate about people's worth if you don't even have common language. If we have common language, we can go somewhere. We can work on this. We can, If we have a common understanding, we can lock arms with each other in both confrontation, but also this beautiful exchange of ideas. But there has to be some level of commonality, whether it's in civility and politeness, whether it's in mutual respect, or whether it's a mutual understanding. But if you don't have any of those, th- the reality is it's not possible. Someone has to change for that civil conversation to be able to happen. And I do want to warn people of that because I think sometimes we go into these conversations thinking that if we just be friends long enough, it's going to like, and this is again, both because I've had heard this from conservative people and from progressive people, then we're just going to figure it out. And it's like, no, there, like there, there are some real genuine points of contention that make it hard to have civil conversation. And you might want to know what those are beforehand. And there's work you can do outside of a conversation to make it easier, to make it better. And that work is usually historical research, reading primary documents, going back and reading about the people, not just about, but from the people of the time period that you're curious about. Well, there you have it. I had a point, Ben, while you were talking, I thought to say something and it just left me. No, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I think that's that's really what, I just really like talking to people. And I just believe, because I remember, oh, this is what it was. I remember in the past where we've had conversations and you know, once I believe something, I will, I will, <laughs> <laughs> I will go hard to go home. Okay. <laughs> and I just remember having conversations and some of them were, ext- they were long conversations and they can discourage people because it's so draining sometimes. I don't know exactly why it's so draining, but as you're talking, you're experiencing so much, you're feeling so much. And at the end of the conversation, it just required so much energy you can feel drained and people don't Mm -hmm. like to you know like who likes to wake up and engage in a conversation that's going to drain you like some people might even say that's not good for your mental health and I do believe that you should be wise and know when to have them but I do remember in the past where we've had some conversations and I walked away my mind has been changed not because you convince me based on an opinion but Mm -hmm. you always come with a lot of examples of the past people's experience experiences and just common sense also to make me see it differently. Doesn't mean that I reject everything that I believed, but now I have an open slot to receive something else or adjust my belief. That's such a good picture, like an open slot to enhance what you already believe and understand. That's so um, evocative. Thank you for that. And before we go, I mentioned earlier, you have so many interests. And one of them, the last year or two, or maybe longer, right? I don't know how long. Uh, I would say the last year, like since 
COVID, basically. <laughs> we oh, all okay. I feel like we all got some new hobbies over COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all I'm gonna say about it is that in the near future you will have an intro level presentation about it, but it's about African American attire and what has, I guess, influenced it. So I'll let you say more about it because I don't wanna butcher the no. idea. I mean, basically, I've just got I've gotten really into historical costuming, which is a thriving like hobby in all over the world, um, actually. But specifically drawing inspiration from not just African-Americans, really, but black people in the Americas. So that includes the Caribbean, that includes South America, that includes North America, you know, but basically how 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 did our dress change? arriving from Africa into this other part of the world through usually through slavery, overwhelmingly through slavery, unfortunately. But also but some of the fun parts are as enslaved people and then and even more so as freed people, how did our dress change? How did the way we dress ourselves change? What interesting like new conventions did we bring to Western dress? Because most people did end up adopting Western dress. But there are still ways that it was different, that it looked different, that it expressed itself differently. And whether that's through retaining some type of traditional clothing or just aesthetic influences that are more cultural and more ephemeral, they're not necessarily a particular piece of clothing, but a point of view that we have about clothing and dress and colors and adornment and all that kind of stuff. I love talking about that. Or really, I love learning about it because I'm I'm still a learner in this, but I would love to share what I have been learning and also some really beautiful photos of uh, Black people in, in their historical dress in the 1700s and 1800s and 1900s. <laughs> yeah, and so I wanted to mention it. I will definitely be attending that presentation. It's going to be on Zoom, right? Yes, it's going to be on Zoom. Okay, so whenever I get the information from you in the flyer, I'll, I'll definitely post that. And I know so many people who would be interested in it. So I'll also let them know. I can't wait to share. And it's partially <laughs> another way to show that history doesn't have to be depressing. There's also really fun and beautiful parts to it mm. as well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I can't wait for this to come out. <laughs> Thank you, Johanna. Thank you again for the conversation. Again, do follow and subscribe so you can uh, get the notification whenever a new episode comes out. So uh, as always, until next time, bye, guys.